If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend event in Winchester. Today it's the turn of historian and author Roger Morehouse speaking about the invasion of Poland in 1939. Roger's recent book on the subject, First to Fight, The Polish War, 1939, re-examines the opening campaign of the Second World War and explains why it was so significant. Uh, yes, uh, the Polish campaign in 1939 I'm talking about today. Um, now I know every, every historian that probably has crossed this stage this week and uh, you know, or this weekend and uh, previous weekends at these events, always tells you that uh, their subject in their latest book is the great untold story, the great forgotten narrative uh, of whatever subject that they're talking about. Um, and to some extent, as you well know, that is uh, a little bit of authors and publishers' hyperbole. Um, but I think this one actually has, a, has some degree of truth to it. But, uh, you know, this is World War II. This isn't, um, you know, some... Uh, obscure conflict uh, in the mists of Central Europe. This is World War II. This is the opening campaign of World War II. 
It's the first five weeks of World War II, which is that great defining conflict, uh, world conflict uh, of the 20th century. It's the campaign for which Britain goes to war, remember, and France. So it's what effectively transforms what might have been potentially a central European squabble into that initially European and then world war that we know. So it is actually quite peculiar that we don't know more about the September campaign. Um, it does tend to get sort of glossed over in our, in our conventional Western and particularly British narrative of the war. We, we, know ours, we think our narrative of the war, the way we tell it to ourselves, the way we watch it on television, the books we read about it, we think we know it very well. But the more you sort of look at the war in the round, you realise, I think, and I hope you agree with me, particularly at the end of the talk maybe, um, that our narrative of World War II is actually rather peripheral and it's actually rather peculiar. It's not really, I think, indicative of, the, of where the real uh, essence, the brutal essence of World War II is going on. And there's a good case to be made for saying that actually, you know, the, the brutal heart of World War II is, is certainly in Europe, is Poland. It's Poland and Ukraine. It's that area. It's the bloodlands that Tim Snyder wrote about uh, probably 10 years ago now. Um, so I think, you know, we have our narrative. We talk about D-Day, we talk about, uh, uh, you know, Battle of Britain, we talk about Dunkirk, all of that stuff. Not, I would argue, where the essence of war, essence of Second World War is actually going on. And it's a very different narrative from the essence of the war. And you can see that in one sort of very easy statistic. If you look at you know, Britain's civil, civilian and military losses deaths in World War II, it's about 330,000, a third of a million, right? Look at Poland's losses in World War II, they're about five and a half million. One in five of the Polish population dies in World War II, which is quite an astonishing statistic. And that, I think, shows you that the experience, the obvious point to make is the experience of the war in Poland is very, very different and much more brutal than the experience that we had of the war from our island of Northwest Europe. So in trying to correct that sort of rather Anglo-centric, rather peripheral view, I think we can start, you know, I think there's a case to be made for embracing Poland's narrative in terms of the Holocaust as well. That's obviously where the, most of the Holocaust happens in those bloodlands. But also um, in terms of embracing their experience of totalitarian occupation, you know, Nazi and Soviet occupation, 39 to 41, and then German occupation from there on. Poland literally wiped from the map, again, for the you know, uh, second time within a generation. Um, but in terms of trying to correct our rather peripheral narrative, we can start by trying to understand the September campaign as a, as a starting point, understand that a bit better. How did this war start? In terms of its basics, that's one of the most famous shots. Uh, I'm sure some of you will have seen that before. This is the, um, the Schleswig-Holstein, the German veteran German battleship uh, which was opening fire, as in this picture, uh, started at dawn on the uh, 1st of September 1939, opened fire on the Polish fort of the Westerplatte, which is uh, a, a military depot, which was on the, uh, there, the sort of northern arm of Peninsula, which is the northern arm of the River Vistula, just north of Danzig. Danzig then, of course, was a League, Na League of Nations free state, um, a result of a post-World War I fudge, the uh, planners of, of the, the, the peace didn't want to give it to either Poland or Germany, so they decided effectively to keep it to themselves. 
uh, and it became a running sore in relations between Poland and Germany as, as a result. Uh, so much so that that Polish fort on the Westerplatte was established in the 1920s because German dockers in Danzig refused to handle military material that was going to the Poles because the Poles, of course, were their mortal enemies. So the Poles set up their military depot, the Westerplatte, which was granted to them, and that's where they could safely unload military material. So effectively, that, was, that served effectively as Poland's port. Um, in the event of conflagration, as you have on the 1st of September, it's going to be the first place that the Germans hit, and so it was. So the Schleswig-Holstein, which was an old First World War, pre-First World War, it's actually pre-Dreadnought, uh, pre-Dreadnought battleship, which uh, was completely obsolete by 1939. It was being used as a training ship for German naval cadets. Uh, had been welcomed into Danzig, into the port of Danzig, on a friendship visit, in inverted commas, uh, on the 26th of August, 1939. And then at dawn on the 1st of September, it's towed out into the channel of the Vistula and opens fire at point-blank range onto those German forts, uh, Polish forts. Um, the expectation aboard the Schleswig-Holstein was that this would take about 10 minutes before they destroyed everything that was on that peninsula. There wasn't much. There was about six guardhouses, uh, sort of fortified villa and, a, and a, you know, a mess area. So there's not much there to aim for. But still, one of the most remarkable stories of the war is that the Polish... Uh, garrison on the Westerplatte, which is only about 200 at this point. Not only is it attacked from the, from the sea, there's also a, a landing of Marines is made and they make a landward assault uh, on the peninsula. And they're also raided from the air by, by various Stukas and various other things. Um, but one of the most remarkable stories of that campaign is that the Westerplatte garrison holds out for seven days. So they expect it to last 10 minutes and they hold out for seven days, which is a remarkable story in itself. And it's one that if you wanted to sort of sum up the September campaign almost in one, in one instance, that could be it. So that's the sort of the opening shots of World War II being fired uh, right there. In terms of the essentials of it, from the 1st of September, um, the Poles fight on until the 6th of October. That's the final surrender of Polish forces in the field. A lot happens in the interim. Uh, the Poles, uh, the Germans actually make fairly swift advances. This is a, 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 I was asked last week actually in Chester whether this was a, an atrocity photo. Um, it's not. This is kind of how the Germans tended to proceed. This was very much the German method of warfare, was essentially to torch pretty much everything that they came across. Um, and this comes across in the, in the eyewitness accounts, particularly on the Polish side, where you could watch, you know, almost from a distance, you could watch the German advance as yet another village sort of went up in flames. Um, this is how they used to uh, progress. They progressed very quickly. Um, the Polish army, as we know, is technologically, numerically... Uh, and doctrinally, in, crucially in terms of the military doctrine that it employs, is inferior to the Germans, quite noticeably inferior. They do fight very gamely, but they, they are up against it. Um, they're also in a very indefensible position. If I just jump forward to my map there, you can see that this is the map of pre-war Poland, obviously, which is a different shape from now. Those of you that know your Poland now, you will know that's a rather different shape. Um, but you have the problems, if you look geostrategically, for Poland, that it's essentially, even before a shot is fired, it's in the jaws of a German, and this is Slovakia here, which is a German ally. The, the Slovaks invade alongside the Germans. So you're in the, in the teeth of a German pincer already, uh, even before a shot is fired. So you've got East Prussia in the north, German enclave of East Prussia. Uh, here's Danzig in the, in, the, in the far north. The Westerplatte is up there. Uh, Warsaw, incidentally, is here. Slap bang in the middle. So they're already, before a shot's fired, they are in 
dire straits because of that strategic situation. Uh, so the Germans advanced pretty quickly. Already by the 8th of September, they are on the outskirts of Warsaw. Um, Warsaw, incidentally, holds out from that point until the 29th of September, so it holds out for over 20 days. It's one of the, the first big sieges of World War II, big urban battles of World War II, uh, which is also remarkable in itself. And the death toll in Warsaw is substantial. It's, it's, by some estimates, it's way up at about 20,000, uh, mainly civilians, which is, which is hideous. Um, there is a major counteroffensive which the Poles carry out. Come back to there on the river Bzura, so if we point to Warsaw again, which is here, there's a tributary of the Vistula, which is here, called the Bzura, and the Poles mount a counteroffensive into the German flank, which is attacking Warsaw, sort of southward into that flank on the Bzura. That battle alone lasts 10 days, and again, costs about 20,000 lives on the Polish side alone. So that's the, the, the biggest single campaign uh, of, the, of the fighting in September of 39. And it showed that the Poles could do it, they could fight back. They could take the fight to the Germans and give the Germans a bloody nose. And they did. They, they liberated a number of towns and villages uh, before they themselves were pushed back. So that's the beginning of that campaign anyway. But the Germans advanced on all fronts. A key point to remember, of course, is that on the 17th of September, the Soviets invade as well, which is one aspect that we traditionally forget. Uh, it's important to note that, you know, Hitler and Stalin are de facto allies in 1939. Uh, the signature of the Nazi-Soviet pact on the 23rd of August brought them into alignment, into a, at the very least, you could call a strategic alignment. They both had an interest in destroying Poland. They're both fundamentally anti-Polish in their worldview um, because they both saw Poland as the, uh, in a sense, as the personification of their national humiliation at the end of the First World War. So for the Germans, obviously, all of that lost territory. Poland didn't exist. There wasn't a Poland in 1917. It had been swallowed up by its German, Russian, German, Russian and Austrian neighbours since 1795. For 123 years, it was not present on the map of Europe. So Poland re-emerges because of the German and Polish and a German, Soviet, Russian and, and Austrian collapse at the end of the First World War. So its very presence is a rebuke to... Berlin and to Moscow. It's a personification of their humiliation. So both Stalin and Hitler are very keen to redraw the map of Europe. And that they decide to do effectively with the Nazi-Soviet pact. This is, I've written, my previous book, The Devil's Alliance, was about the Nazi-Soviet pact, which is another one of those chapters that is fundamentally misunderstood in the Western narrative of the war. It's always seen as the Germans, or the, the, the Soviets rather, making a defensive gesture to the Germans, saying, we know you're going to attack us but we're just going to make a pact and do whatever you want to do just to keep us out of this dreadful conflict. That, unfortunately, is reading history backwards through a lens of Soviet propaganda. That's not how it was. The Nazi-Soviet pact is an aggressive act, primarily against Poland, secondarily against the Western powers. And it needs that aspect of how it's interpreted needs to be radically uh, reinterpreted in our Western narrative. So the Soviets invade 17th of September, they advance again very swiftly. They're facing essentially border policemen. The border troops in the east of Poland don't have uh, anything in the way of artillery, air cover. This is a very long frontier here for them to try and defend. So these are the advanced lines of the Soviet armies. 500,000 Soviet troops advance. It's later portrayed in Soviet propaganda as 
essentially a humanitarian operation, that they weren't invading at all, they were just coming in to clean up the mess because Poland had collapsed yet again, roll their eyes. Uh, Poland, that's what they used to call the seasonal state. The seasonal state had collapsed yet again and, the, and the, the Red Army was coming in to clean up the mess. That was their narrative. It's entirely spurious. This was very obviously and deliberately a military invasion. So that's on the 17th of September. By, certainly by the end of September, by the time Warsaw falls, Warsaw again is here, uh, 29th, just above Warsaw, uh, it, north of Warsaw is the fortress of Modlin, which also holds out through most of that period. That falls at the same time as Warsaw. You have also the Hell Peninsula up in the north, which holds out until the 2nd of October. Um, and there are various other sort of pockets of resistance. And the final pocket of resistance is a curious unit, a sort of hybrid unit of, uh, of sort of ragtags and, and various bits of shattered military uh, other units, which is heading essentially west from the, what becomes the Soviet-occupied area. And that's the last one to surrender uh, under a general by the name of Kleberg. He has a curiously German-sounding name, but he was very Polish. Uh, and that was one of the comparatively few units that actually had, had the, uh, the dubious honor of having fought both against the Soviets and against the Germans uh, in September 1939. And they finally surrender here, at a place called Kotsk, uh, on the 6th of September. And that, even that, uh, 6th of October, sorry, even that was after a, uh, a, a four-day battle. Uh, so that's the final uh, event of the September campaign, where the last Polish troops in the field <coughs> lay down their arms. A crucial point to make at this point is to say that Poland itself does not surrender. The Polish government, Polish high command, uh, the Polish mathematicians that later do such great work at Bletchley Park and elsewhere, along with a large number of pilots who later help us out with 303 Squadron and others during the Battle of Britain, for example. There's a, well, part of the uh, Polish plan is to escape southeastwards down here. So all of those organizations and individuals that I mentioned managed to get out through this, what was known as the Romanian bridgehead. This was Poland's only friendly frontier, effectively. So this was one area where they could possibly escape. They were briefly interned, most of them, by the Romanians. But the Romanians weren't very good at interring people, um, so they, they essentially wriggled free, uh, you know, blagged their way out again, ended up in France, and by extension in London. So... Polish government ends up in exile, first in Paris, later in London after 1940, and it carries on the fight, crucially. So there is continuity of command. So rather than commanding armies in the field, the Polish government exile is then commanding the Polish underground in occupied Poland. So there is continuity uh, of command. So this is why there is no collaborationist state set up in Poland, because Poland is, is effectively, you know, it has this administrative continuity through the government in exile. So what becomes the Polish underground, which incidentally is the, the biggest, under, biggest, most effective underground resistance organization of World War II, we obsess about the Maquis in this country because we've grown up on secret army and allo allo. <laughs> but the Maquis uh, would be taught some serious lessons in underground resistance by the Polish underground. And the Polish underground is formed right at the end, officially formed right at the end of the September campaign. An order is flown into uh, Warsaw on, uh, I think, the 24th of September, 
which gave authorization to senior commanders within the Polish army to start setting up underground cells of resistance. So they can see this is where it's going. We're going to be defeated. We are going to fight on in a class clandestine manner. And this, of course, was something that was nothing unusual to the Poles at all. As I've said, Poland was van vanished from the map for 123 years under foreign occupation through the 19th century and beyond. So for them, what they call conspiracia, the idea of living, living in conspiracy, having a public face and a private face, a public narrative and a private narrative, uh, was something that was not unusual. So for many of those who joined the resistance in Poland at the end of September 1939 and beyond, this was something that perhaps they had already experienced themselves prior to 1918, living in this clandestine manner. Or at the very worst, their parents had experienced it and had experienced the rising, risings against foreign oppression, uh, setting up these sort of resistance cells and that sort of thing. So this was almost second nature to that generation of Poles. It certainly wasn't something unusual. And they were very good at it. So consequently, the Polish underground is one of the most effective, I think the most effective, certainly in Europe, uh, in uh, World War II. And again, it's another part of the narrative that we really need to know a little bit better. So armed with some of those sort of basics of, uh, of the September campaign, let's look at a bit, a bit of the mythology, uh, which is crucial. Where you don't have knowledge of a subject, you tend to feed on the mythology. And in this case, the mythology that is spread still about the September campaign uh, which masquerades as, as knowledge, is essentially the, the wartime propaganda of both the Nazis and the Soviets. Uh, in the na Nazi case, this sort of two-pronged uh, propaganda narrative, the first one being that their victory in 1939, which was a relatively easy victory, let's be honest, but that their victory in 1939 is solely down to the brilliance of the Blitzkrieg. You can see why the Germans want, would want that narrative to spread, because it's, it's sort of preparing uh, like a sort of victorious team saying, yeah, and we're going to beat the rest of you, you know, uh, next time we see you. So they're sort of anticipating uh, the spring of 1940 against the British and the French by lauding, by bigging up Blitzkrieg and its, its efficiency and its effectiveness. It is efficient, it is effective, and it is crucially a very innovative model of warfare. But it's not just Blitzkrieg that explains the Polish defeat in 1939. There are other aspects to bear in mind. As I said before, Poland is already, before shots fired, is geostrategically in a very difficult situation. It's in a pincer of its enemy's making already. You also have this massive disparity in terms of equipment. The Germans have, this is the image that they like to portray of September 39, of the mass tanks, Incidentally, all Mark I and Mark II panzers for those tank buffs in the room. Um, some Mark III panzers in 1939 as well. And the Mark III, incidentally, goes right the way through the war. So it's one that does have, you know, is very effective. But it's all Mark Is and Twos, which are very small. They're about sort of 10 or 12 tons only. Um, so it's not like the sort of the massive armoured beer moths that we imagine, like the Tiger tank, for example, which is six times heavier than these, is 60 tons. So these are much smaller, much less well-armed, and they're actually very comparable to what the Poles had, because the Poles had these. They had Vickers tanks, and they had a variation of the Vickers tanks, 7TP, and they're the same sort of weight, they have the same sort of armament, they have the same sort of uh, 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 um, thickness of armour in terms of uh, defensive capability. 
The problem is that the Poles have about 100 of these. They have about probably 400 tanks in total. They only have about 100 of these, the best ones that they have, which are easily comparable to German tanks, whereas the Germans have something like 1,500 of these. So in terms of the most effective tanks available, it's about 15 to 1. So it's pretty obvious who's going to win. Um, but again, that, the blitzkrieg aspect, there's a lot more going on. You've got this geostrategic aspect. Even the weather is conspiring against Poland in 1939. The summer of 39 was extremely dry. So part of the Polish defensive plan was to try to withdraw, execute a fighting withdrawal to what they hoped would be defensible lines. So they wanted to use their great rivers. You've got the River Vistula, which comes right up through the center of Poland and exits into the Baltic here. You've got the Bug and the Narev, which are two rivers that uh, Narev up this way and the Bug comes down uh, it, it, down to Jesh, actually, through here. So they wanted to use those great rivers as part of their defensive system. Crucially, the Polish defensive plan was to hold out, execute that fighting withdrawal, uh, and hold out until, wait for it, the British and the French come to their aid, because that's what the British and the French said they were going to do. And they don't, right? So it, there's a crucial aspect here of a, a betrayal. But that was part of the plan, was to try and effect this sort of fighting withdrawal down to the southeast, but, of course, if those rivers are at about 60% of what they should have been, which is what the rainfall was in 1939, then they are not the defensive lines that they would have been. So even the weather is conspiring against the Poles. So they're outnumbered, they're outgunned, they're outfought, let's be honest, and even the weather uh, has bad things in store for them. But Blitzkrieg itself is not the sole explainer of Poland's collapse. There are other aspects. There are Polish failings. They had failed in that intervening uh, period of independence to put enough money into uh, even, even a mechanized element in the army, never mind armored units. They had two mechanized brigades only versus, I think, four panzer armies on the German side. So they're in an extremely difficult situation. The second part of that German narrative is that of. Uh, Cavalry against tanks, this old sort of hoary old myth about the, the Poles charging German tanks with their cavalry, which I'm sure all of you have heard. Um, it is a nonsense. Um, as I said, the Poles had tanks. They're not all on horseback. And, of course, the Germans had cavalry. This is just as typical a picture of the invasion of, of September 39 as the previous one. Actually, that's more unusual. There are more German troops on horseback than there are Poles on horseback in 1939. They're still using cavalry. Everyone is using cavalry in 1939. The Red Army is using, using cavalry. So just the fact that the Poles use cavalry is not necessarily evidence of their terminal backwardness. Everyone is doing it. There are noticeably some cavalry-on-cavalry cavalry battles in 1939, which is in itself remarkable. I'm sure that might be a surprise to some of you. And the Poles generally prevailed in those battles. Polish cavalry was about as good as it got in 1939. They are very effective. But this narrative of cavalry against tanks is a nonsense. There are a couple of instances, you can see where this story comes from. There are a couple of instances in the beginning of the campaign where Polish cavalry had been very effective. They are extremely effective against German infantry. You can imagine a cavalry brigade coming at you, a squadron coming at you, and you're a humble infantryman. You are in trouble. Uh, they are very fast. They are very brutal. And before you know it, you are swept from the field. And this happens in a number of occasions. Uh, and on one famous occasion, on the 1st of September, a place called Kroyanti up in the Polish corridor, 
Um, Polish cavalry clear the field of German infantry and are then countercharged by a German armoured column with predictable results. So German armour against cavalry is as one-sided as cavalry is against infantry. Uh, and this, of course, goes down into German folklore. But what's also interesting is that the Germans themselves, in various accounts from uh, Letters Home, for example, even, for, even from Guderian's memoir, he talks about the fear that the Polish cavalry instilled in German infantry troops in 1939. They were terrified of the Polish infantry. So in a sense, the creation by the Germans of this myth that these foolish men on horseback had charged their tanks with their sabres drawn, shouting hurrah, and bashed their, in the most extreme versions of the narrative, bashed their sabres on the steel of the tanks, you know, in, uh, in consternation that these are real tanks. I mean, this is the most extreme version of that narrative. You can see it's almost a, a sort of a, a way of countering that fear that some German infantrymen had of Polish cavalry advances. And to see where the story comes from, it actually comes from the, a, a, camp, or a battle during that, that Bzura campaign, which I mentioned, the largest campaign of the September campaign, uh, west of Warsaw, uh, on, I think, the 15th of September. And it came from a story from a, uh, an Italian war correspondent whose name was Indro Montanelli. Uh, and he was uh, embedded with German troops. And he wrote an account of the aftermath of one of these engagements during the Bzura campaign. Um, and he talks about the, the field being strewn with the bodies of men and the, crucially with the bodies of horses. Um, and it's actually, it's a reasonably sympathetic piece because he's saying, you know, the Poles are being outnumbered, are being, being, you know, they're gallant, but they're being outnumbered and being outfought. And this was published in the Corriere della Sera. And as some of you will know, if you write a newspaper piece, you don't get to write the title. The title is written by a subhead wherever it is. And the, the, the title of this piece was Cavalry Against Tanks. That was how it was written in the Corriere della Sera. That, of course, was picked up by Goebbels. Goebbels runs with it, says these fools are charging us with their cavalry. And that becomes the standard German narrative of the war, is that these foolish, romantic Poles, backward in their military technology, are charging our brave boys in their tanks on, on horseback. And you can see how that to Nazism, which is you know, a racial creed, as we well know, it's a simple step from that to say these people are backward and they're using old technology and old ideas. It's a simple step from that to say these people are not only te technologically, militar militarily inferior, they're also racially inferior. Right? So it's a small step to make that judgment. And that's what, that's what that argument is about. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But as I said, it's a nonsense. Germans have more cavalry than the, the Poles. Everyone's using, using cavalry. Poles have tanks. Poles actually fight very well. Polish cavalry, there's a sort of picture of them in exercises in 1939. They're actually rather good at what they do. They generally fight dismounted, crucially. So actually using an old-fashioned cavalry charge is a real, is a sort of almost a desperation tactic, or it's something you would use against infantry. If you could see that you were against infantry, you would do it. But generally, they fight dismounted. They use their horses for mobility. They get into position. They have nice little anti-tank guns, artillery pieces like this Bofors 37. They have a brilliant anti-tank rifle, uh, which was so good at the time, actually, it was copied by the Soviets and became the Soviets' standard anti-tank rifle through the early phase, early phase of the war. So Polish cavalry is actually rather good at what they do. And at one battle, particularly a place called Mokra, down in the, in the southwest near the Silesian border, on the 1st and 2nd of September, um, two Polish cavalry brigades hold back the 4th Panzer Army, which is quite a remarkable achievement, before withdrawing in good order, incidentally. So they were very good at what they did uh, and were very good at destroying Pol uh, German tanks as well. Something like a 1,000 German uh, armoured vehicles, so both tanks and other armoured vehicles, half-tracks and the rest, were destroyed during the September campaign. So this is not quite as one-sided as the Germans would have liked us to believe. Cavalry against tanks. The next sort of bit, bit of mythology is about who was present and who wasn't. Uh, crucially, we talked about the British. I mentioned briefly the Soviets. Soviets invade on the 17th of September. This is a rare picture of the Soviet invasion. This is a, again, for the tank nerds in the room. I'm not a military historian, by the way. Uh, I've just kind of been moonlighting as a military historian. This is a BT-7 tank for those that are. Uh, this is a Soviet Red Army BT-7 tank, forerunner of the T-34. Um, this is an a part of the Soviet invasion in 1939. Um, the problem you have with this is that, whereas in the German case, every other uh, German officer is carrying a Leica camera, and there's lots of sort of private collections of photographs from 1939, many of which I've seen, and they're, they're very good. So there's a huge mass of photographic evidence of the, Soviet, of the German invasion. There's very, very little on the Russian invasion at all because you didn't have the same sort of, you know, spread of, uh, of use of cameras and so on. It's much more tightly controlled, not, not least officially as well. Um, but it is a military invasion. 500,000 troops, two army groups, either side of the Pripyat marshes. Uh, the intention given, the, the instruction given by the, the chief of staff of the Red Army is to destroy Polish forces. It's not to carry out a humanitarian operation because of the collapse of the Polish state. That's the propaganda narrative that they give. The instruction to German, uh, Poli uh, Russian forces, sorry, is to destroy Polish forces. It is very obviously a military operation. They advance very fast. Um, as again, as I said, they're faced with mainly sort of border policemen, effectively. Um, they are resisted at many points as well. There's 
a number of um, uh, bunker complexes in that, uh, on that eastern frontier at which the Poles hold out very gamely, in some cases for three or four days, uh, before finally being uh, eliminated by the Red Army. So although the Red Army tell the world that they're not there, they very obviously are. And the other side of the coin is this chap, the British and the French, Chamberlain, of course, waving his piece of paper. So while the Red Army is telling the world they're not present in the Polish invasion, but they are, the British and the French are telling the world that they are present, and they're not. Uh, Chamberlain, of course, uh, as you see here, piece of paper, the gentleman's agreement with Hitler from September 1938, Munich Agreement. Uh, here he is waving about Heston Aerodrome, proclaiming peace for our time. Uh, it was a very short-lived piece, of course. Um, already by the following spring, Hitler had sort of torn up this agreement, figuratively speaking, and had marched into what, what then remained of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and Chamberlain said, right, that's it. You know, we, you promised last time we're not going to listen to any more of your lies. And then you've got the end of appeasement, and the British and the French offer guarantees to what's expected to be Poland's, uh, Germany's next target, which is Poland, incidentally, and Romania. Um, throughout that summer, Britain and Poland are having some high-level discussions, staff discussions, and the French as well. The French make concrete uh, arrangement with the Poles to come in to invade Western Germany on the 15th day of mobilization in the event of war. This is enshrined in the agreement, the, the uh, Anglo-Franco-Polish French, uh, French, French agreement, uh, in May of 1939. The British are a bit more vague. We just say that we're going to come to their assistance in the event of aggression. That is set in stone by the Anglo-Polish military agreement of the 25th of August, so just before the outbreak of war. That is set in stone. Again, the same wording, the British, and British will come to Poland's aid in the event of foreign aggression. The problem is the British and the French, with a high degree, I suspect, of imperial, post-imperial arrogance, are expecting that merely by raising their voices and saying, you will not be doing this, Herr Hitler, you will not be invading the next country on your list, merely by raising their voices, they expected him to heed and to cease and desist. Of course, we know that Hitler by this point was held the Western powers in contempt. He thought they were corrupt. He thought they were weak. To some extent, he was right. And he was no longer listening to their threats. So when he did invade on the 1st of September, essentially those paper tigers, those paper threats that the British and the French had leveled at him were shown to be worthless. He expected the British and the French to abandon Poland and stand down. And in that, he was half right. Because the British and French response to the Polish campaign was one of warm words, certainly, sympathy, certainly, hard action, not so much. There is a British leafleting campaign against German cities. Uh, it starts on the 9th of September. The, the uh, RAF dro drops leaflets on Germany. Uh, again, imploring the German people to stop being so beastly. It's almost the text of the, almost the text of the leaflet. Um, there are there are a few operations that we 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 fly. The, the Bomber Command flies a few a few operations against German naval targets, particularly at the beginning of the war. Uh, so Wilhelmshaven, Bremerhaven, um, the, the the Kiel Canal, for example, the first 
Bomber Command loss of World War II was actually a, a couple of Wellingtons shot down at Brunsbüttel at the mouth of the Kiel Canal on the 4th of September. So there are losses, certainly. But in terms of actually taking the fight to Germany in 1939, as Poland certainly expected would happen, there's very, li very little in evidence. The French betrayal is actually, if anything, even more egregious. Because as I said, the French had committed in their own military agreement with the Poles that they would uh, mobilise and they would invade uh, Western Germany on the 15th day of their mobilisation. Um, that, of course, doesn't happen. The, the French invasion, the word invasion is rather too strong for what happens in the Saar, for example, the Saar invasion, which I think starts on the 6th of September. Um, I think excursion is probably a better word. Um, sojourn, something like that. Um, certainly isn't an invasion. Um, it lasts for about five days. They advance for about five kilometres. They're shot at and then they, they sort of sit tight and then they decide to withdraw again. And that literally is about the story of the Saar campaign. Um, tragically, and this is something I sort of tell in the book, on the Polish side, if you read the Polish press, the Polish press at this point, who of course themselves are suffering enormously under German assault in this time, they are taking the French and British uh, press communiques, military communiques from the, from the Saar campaign and from the RAF saying that they've dropped leaflets and they're bombing this and they're bombing that. Uh, and they are running with, the, you know, reading between the lines of those uh, communiques and coming out with all sorts of fantastic stories about, you know, for example, Aachen has fallen to French troops. Um, Augsburg has fallen to French troops. Stuttgart has fallen to French troops. The British are bombing Berlin. The British are bombing Krupp in Essen. No, they're not. But tragically, the Poles convinced themselves that this is happening because that's what they expected to happen. That's what they've been told would happen. They're sort of adding to that narrative, that rather thin narrative of the military communiques, and they're adding on all the things that they expected to happen in their name. In truth, the effort, the Anglo-French effort in Poland's defence is risible in 1939. And it, interestingly, it shifts. There are various Anglo-French staff meetings, even, even you know, top-level Chamberlain, Daladier, Gamelin, all meet together once at Abbeville on the 12th of September, again at Hove, of all places, uh, on, I think, the 20th of September. Um, and they have these high-level meetings, and they, they discuss in very sort of abstract and grandiose terms the campaign and what's going on and what they're going to do in the future. And they issue press communiques to the world's press, saying lauding the Poles and saying how brave they were to be defending themselves against the tyrannical onslaught of the Nazism and promising yet again that they're going to come to Poland's aid and yet nothing happens. And actually the, the British and French narrative shifts in that time. It shifts to one of, well, we can't really help you now, sorry about that, but we will help you in the future. We will help you to restore Poland at some point in the future when it becomes possible. Of course, this isn't communicated to the Poles. The Poles are still desperately <coughs> expecting Allied help, but it never comes. So again, the British and the French say they are there, say they are on the Polish side, but they're not. One of the sort of key aspects of this narrative of the September campaign is that of the brutality with which it's carried out. 
And this is quite remarkable. And it's something I think, because the whole story has basically been forgotten, has been the place of that narrative of September has been taken by wartime mythology, by cavalry against tanks, the absence of the Red Army. The real essence of that conflict has been forgotten. And it was incredibly brutal. I think there's a general assumption. Again, we have to, we have to look honestly at our own narrative of the war. There's a general assumption in the Western narrative that the war is brutal, it's full of atrocities, but they kind of get worse as the war goes on. There's a step change in 1941 with the German invasion of the Soviet Union, and from then on, it's race war all the way. You know, civilians are uh, open season on civilians and everything else. And there's almost a tacit assumption from that that the opening phase of the war, because that was our experience, was in some way rather more genteel or rather more chivalrous, but not a bit of it. Interestingly, if you look at the British and French defence, the French campaign against the Germans in 1940, which is of similar length to the Polish campaign, it's six weeks versus five. This is a five-week campaign, that was six. It's about six months after. Um, a lot of the conditions are the same. The, 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 the tactics being used by the Germans are very similar. And yet, in the French campaign, you have three prominent massacres of POWs and civilians. Vormhout, Paradis, and Vinkt. You have other lesser massacres who are, which are of, of uh, French colonial troops, incidentally, all of which are carried out by the SS. They're not usually carried out by um, Wehrmacht, they're carried out by the SS. But generally there are three headline massacres in a six-week campaign. Polish campaign, there are upwards of 600 massacres. So almost every other village and town witnesses scenes like this, whether it might be 20 people, might be 50 people, predominantly Poles, not even Jews. So this isn't necessarily the opening phase of the Holocaust. There are cases of, of Jews being massacred as well. But this isn't just the opening aspect of the Holocaust. That's not as simple as that. This is the deliberate targeting of the Polish population. And it's part of that race war. So the Germans go into 1939, that invasion of Poland, with a racial agenda. They are taking race war to Poland. And crucially, they don't do that in France in 1940 because they view the British and the French as being racially acceptable. The Poles are not racially acceptable to German eyes. Okay? So this sort of thing, this is actually in Budgosz. Uh, this is part of the well, quite renowned, infamous massacre uh, known as Bloody Sunday, not the response to Bloody Sunday incident. Um, this is in Budgosz up in the Polish corridor. Uh, but this would have been seen, scenes like this would have been seen right across Poland. Every other town and village seeing similar scenes. About 600, we reckon, upwards. So where you've got three in the whole of the six weeks of the French campaign, you've got about 15 per day on average of the Polish campaign. There's a massive difference in the attitude that the Germans go in with. And incidentally, the Soviet invader is no better. So where the Germans are taking race war to the Poles in the West, the Soviets are bringing class war to the Poles in the East. So the Red Army habitually separates out officers and men from its POWs, and what was normal is for the officers to be taken out and shot, because they were usually of the nobility, they were usually educated, they were the officer class anyway. So that's three reasons. From a Soviet perspective, that's three reasons to take someone out and shoot them. 
and they did so. There are various cases. Again, it's less well publicised, less well documented of necessity than what was going on in the German, on the German front in the West, but it's still going on. And I, publish, I, I research it as thoroughly as I can in the book. And really considering where this has been written about at all in the Western narrative, the September campaign, very often the, Poli the, the Soviet invasion of Poland is ignored entirely. It's almost like swallowing Stalin's propaganda without comment. So actually for the first time in English, I've tried to flesh out the true story of that uh, Soviet invasion. And it is a brutal story. There are countless uh, instances of, of this sort of treat, wanton brutality against civilians, against POWs. And of course, of those officer class taken prisoner by the Soviets, a proportion of those in 1940 end up being the, the victims of the Katyn massacres that you might have heard of uh, in the spring of 1940, where you have 22,000 uh, of the Polish officer class uh, border guards, policemen, uh, prison officers, all officer class basically taken out in batches and shot at three sites, shot in the back of the head. 22,000 of Poland's elite. So this is a conscious effort, both on the Soviet side and on the German side, to decapitate Polish society. And this is happening right on the back of the September campaign. This sort of wanton targeting of civilians and POWs merges with a deliberate attempt to decapitate Polish society, to turn Polish society into a nation of peasants with which, you know, uneducated peasants, with whom you could do what you wanted. Because that's what both the Germans on one side and the Soviets on the other side wanted. That's what they wanted to create. So the, the degree of brutality in the September campaign is quite astonishing. And for that reason alone, I suggest we should probably know it better. It's an interesting story, just before I sort of wind things up. Um, this is one of the sort of Jewish elements of this story. As I said, actually, the, statistically, most of those targeted, particularly by the Germans, are, are Polish rather than Jewish. There are Jewish elements. There. It's a big massacre. It's a place called Przemysl down in the southeast of Poland, where 600 Jews are rounded up and taken to a cemetery and shot by the Wehrmacht. Again, it's the Wehrmacht. It's not the SS. Um, there are various other instances of, of um, massacres and atrocities against Jews. Um, this is quite a famous one because this lady here, has anyone seen this picture before? No. This lady here is the famous Leni Riefenstahl, uh, who made you know, Hitler's great propagandist, who made uh, Triumph of the Will, uh, the Olympia, the great uh, you know, documentary propaganda film about the Olympic Games of 36 in Berlin. And she signed up uh, as Hitler's sort of in-house propagandist. She signed up to be a war reporter in 1939. She travelled to a place called Konskia, south of Warsaw. And on the 12th of September, she was in Konskia when uh, the German army took the town and promptly rounded up the Jews and decided that uh, the Jews were going to pay the price for those German soldiers that had died in taking the town of Konskia. So they told them that they had to dig the graves for German prisoners, for German dead from, from the battle for the town. Um, obviously, they didn't have equipment to dig those graves. They were forced to dig uh, with their bare hands, which they did under insults, blows from rifle butts, and you can imagine what, whatever else. At one point, the uh, Jews of Konskia who are being forced to do this decide to make a run for it, and they bolt, and of course are then promptly gunned down by the Wehrmacht. And in the aftermath, 22 uh, Konskia Jews are dead. 
And this was all witnessed by Leni Riefenstahl, who, of course, has been sent there in the same way as she had with those grand propaganda films to make a you know, very airbrushed, beautiful, beautified uh, story, visual retelling of the September campaign. And she sees that. And this is her rather distressed reaction. I would suggest she's distressed by realizing, as much as anything, by realizing that this creed that she had sold to the world as this sort of aesthetically beautiful, um, powerful, restrained, handsome creation of the, of the uh, Olympia films, for example, she's realizing the gulf between that and the bloody reality of Nazism that she witnesses on that day. It's quite an interesting little vignette uh, of one of these massacres. So, very quickly, why this has been forgotten. It has been forgotten, essentially, because the victors write the history. So the only people that wrote about the September campaign during the war were the Germans. So the Germans wrote a few sort of, you know, spurious propagandistic memoirs and a few coffee table books, not much else. And then, of course, they went on to greater invasions and greater crimes and promptly forgot about the September campaign. And then post-war, the Germans took a long time to come around to writing about that history, took really until the 1960s, by which time they spend most of their time expiating their guilt for the Holocaust and not really talking about what they did to Poland, which was brutal and horrific. So September 39 doesn't really come into the German narrative post-war. The Soviet narrative post-war, of course, they don't talk about it because they weren't there, remember? So they don't talk about it. This is one of the black spots of, Ru of Russian history. Um, the Soviet narrative of World War II is that it started in 1941 when they were invaded and it ended in 1945 when they're, when they're victorious in Berlin. And it very artfully airbrushes the two years prior to 1941 when they were actually operating in cahoots with Hitler because that wouldn't have done for their narrative. So they weren't there. They don't talk about it. British and the French also, our narrative of the war very quickly becomes rather parochial. We talk about D-Day, we talk about Dunkirk, we talk about Battle of Britain, and we talk about these things rather endlessly and repeatedly, and so it goes on, and we don't really understand. Until arguably things like Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad came out in 1998, that was really the first time, certainly in popular history, that, that history readers in this country and interest in World War II were sort of transported eastwards and taken somewhere else and say, look, there's another narrative. It wasn't all about D-Day and Dunkirk and commando comic books. So that's been something that has been coming, this sort of appreciation of another narrative than our own, but it's still too slow in coming. So we didn't really talk about it. The French didn't really talk about it. Communist Poland didn't talk about it because there was no mileage in it for Communist Poland. So the only time that it's really been talked about is post-1989. After the collapse of communism, the Poles started talking about it. So there's a lot of historiography in Polish, which has not yet to sort of transfer over. None of it's been translated. Uh, none of it's really known outside of Poland. So there's a lot of material there for me to, to pick through, a lot of archives which had never really been visited by, uh, certainly by Western scholars. So there was a lot of material for me to get my teeth into. So crucially, this is very much a Polish view. It's not just your standard German view of the war, which is where it's been written at all before it tends to be that sort of side, side of things. This is a very Polish view. So it's a lot of first-hand accounts of ordinary Polish civilians, military, uh, telling the story of their war. Really for the first time. It hasn't been present 
certainly in our, in our Western English-speaking narrative uh, at all in that way. So I would end, I suppose, just with a, with a plea. I mean, this stuff I think is important. I think it's important for historians. It's an essential part of what we should be doing is to challenge mythology. Um, but also, in this aspect, I think we need to widen our gaze. When we talk about World War II, when we read about World War II, we need to widen our gaze a bit. But spare a thought for the Poles, uh, spare a thought for their narrative of the war, and, I, and spare a thought for the fact that we should, I think we owe it to them to understand their war rather better than we do. And we can start that process by reading about the September campaign. Thank you. That was Roger Morehouse. His book on the subject, First to Fight, is on sale now, published by Bodley Head. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. There you can also find a wealth of other articles and podcasts on the Second World War. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the history of medicine. Thank you.